Welcome to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. Today is November 29th, 2016. My name is Mayanna Dellinger, and I'm a professor of law with the University of South Dakota School of Law. Today, I have the great honor and pleasure of interviewing Craig Morris of the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies, IASS, in Potsdam, Germany. Mr. Morris is a senior fellow at the IASS. Co-authored with Arne Jungjohan, his new book, Energy Democracy, is the first history of Germany's energy transition, the Energiewende. He has served as a technical editor of IRENA's Remap and of Greenpeace's Energy Revolution. In 2008, he co-founded Berlin's PV magazine, in 2010, Renewables International, and in 2012, he became the lead author of energytransition.de. In 2014, he won the International Association of Energy Economists Prize for Energy Journalism. Mr. Morris, welcome. Thanks for having me. So you're very interested in uh, and know a lot about how Germany has uh, has or is transitioning its um, energy um, sector, basically. And you've told me that that began as a grassroots movement with citizens as the main driver. My first thought was, do you think that, though, can be duplicated in other areas of the world, such as the United States, where environmental issues often don't rank too highly on the list of concerns held by the general public, and also where a large percentage of the population still deny the fact that, for instance, anthropogenic climate change is even happening? Yes, I absolutely think that Americans can do this themselves. Um, I mean, I would actually also point out that Americans are not really less interested in the environment than the Germans are, according to at least the, the surveys that I've seen. There's Americans are actually genuinely concerned about this. Um, and what we really have to understand about the Germans, we, we shouldn't oversell sort of their environmentalism. So this actually started, this Energiewende grassroots movement, began in the 1970s as an attempt by um, a, a rural conservative community to stop the industrialization of their surroundings. So we have a similar sort of uh, conflict in the U.S. right now, let's say with fracking projects. And so this wasn't mainly these people saying you're going to come in and uh, you know ruin the environment, but mainly just change the environment, uh, change the surroundings and take away farmland and turn it into an industry. So these people were protecting their ways of life and their livelihoods. And I think that's actually an argument that would sell pretty well in small town America today. It sure sounds like it, uh, judging from what we've seen and heard uh, in the United States and also elsewhere recently. Um, and I noticed you also said that uh, successful German renewable co-ops um, also all say the same thing, that people got involved, as you're saying right now, because they wanted to save the community first, um, but the planet second. Right. So that's what uh, policymakers should focus on, in your opinion, then? Right. So my main contention really is that we've been uh, trying to explain uh, climate change to, to the public, and that's very important. I mean, climate change is a huge is issue. Um, but really what people are concerned about, and, and this is what I've found in, you know, the 10, uh, roughly 10 uh, community projects across uh, Germany that I've, you know, become personally familiar with, is that what these people were trying to solve was not, uh, you know, cross-generational issues, but actual problems happening today. And so just building a community, to give you one example in, in a 
in a, a small place in uh, Bavaria. This uh, small village had lost its last uh, restaurant. It, uh, they, the, the kids had to take a bus to the next big town to go to school, and people were no longer uh, gathering together anywhere. So they had become a suburb, and sort of the next stop was Ghost Town, right? Mm -hmm. And so they actually got this um, project started basically just to give themselves a future period. Mm -hmm. And of course this was, uh, you know, they also talked about uh, saving the climate and, and then, you know, doing something against climate change. So that's always, you know, part of the issue. But the main motive that I found everywhere is that people have things they want to address in the, in the short term and midterm. That um, I think is um, is certainly part of what we're seeing right now, and so you're saying that the, the the two can go hand in hand. Do you think there might even be a benefit from not even mentioning things like climate change and the environment, but rather focusing on jobs and the economy? That, as we've seen um, in the United States recently, that really is apparently what people are the most worried about. Well, I think you know I don't want to say that we shouldn't try to convince people about climate change because you know that debate. It's largely over in Germany. We don't really have too many people over here saying climate change is not happening or whatever. Uh, we do need to reach that level in the United States as well. But I would point out to sort of climate campaigners and people who are genuinely interested in doing something that we can reach um, you know, a, a broader audience by just asking people, what are your concerns? Right? Ask people what's bothering them today. And you'll find that it's things like uh, people are, you know, leaving the community. There are no local jobs here, and then you can you can start proposing your projects and getting them involved by saying, "Hey, look, we could put up some wind turbines here. The farmers, you know, they've got all kinds of bio waste. We need to come together, collect this bio waste, make biogas out of it, uh, build district heat lines in the community." And this will actually bring everyone together to town meetings and just to talk to each other again. Um, and, and it will strengthen not, not only the, the economics of the community, but the sense of community. That's a certain an important factor. And you've also pointed out uh, that rural citizens, with uh, often with uh, little education, have just voted for both Brexit and uh, Donald Trump. Um, in that connection, you've said that renewable co-ops offer these people uh, local opportunities and options. Can you elaborate on that? What do you mean by that? Right. So I think the, the Germans, and, and not only the Germans, but a couple of neighboring countries like Austria and Denmark, uh, they have always given, uh, I would argue, better options to people who just don't go to college. And uh, in the States, we really have this you know, notion that you have to go to, you know, to college and get a, a degree if you want to you know, move up in life and whatever. And to, to be quite frank about it, you know, we need um, people who are good with their hands. And it's kind of hard to offshore those jobs. And so this is kind of where the energy transition can bring everyone together and heal some of these wounds that we're very much suffering from. Um, you know, regardless of who just won the last presidential election, um, the wounds would have been there. They are real. And so what I'm, what I'm trying to say is let's focus a bit more on vocational training like they have in Germany um, and, and get people who are good with their hands, you know, give them uh, better job opportunities. Um, they, they can also become a part of these, you know, uh, local uh, distributed uh, renewable energy projects. 
Um, and it doesn't have to be just uh, the brainy people making all the money. You know, we can give good jobs to people who can't be offshored, and that should be worth something. Mm -hmm. And the kinds of jobs you could create, as you're also mentioning yourself right now, uh, are good jobs, uh, good futuristic jobs, whereas a lot of the jobs in the oil and coal uh, industries are kind of dirty, obviously dangerous, you know, not necessarily the best types of jobs. So you're saying that the types of job created could, in your opinion, be better than, than those of yesteryear? Well, certainly in terms of the health impacts, yes. Um, you know, coal miners um, have very hard labor. And, uh, you know, whatever the coal lung, or I forget what the term is for that, uh, but these people have health impacts uh, that we will also, um, you know, not really face with wind and solar and biomass. Um, but really, you know, small town, uh, you know, farmers who are uh, struggling in, in, in the United States, certainly, but I would say, you know, you see the protests in Europe as well. It, th these projects that I'm talking about, the sort of renewable energy co-ops, they give these communities and these particular you know people the farmers themselves uh, an option so they're they're no longer stuck in this system where increasingly and this is what we're hearing from the farmers in the US where we we have to buy the seeds and everything from the big company and we're no longer really able to negotiate on an equal basis with them this gives them a completely different option um they can grow energy crops uh they'll have a, a separate stream of revenue And this will make them independent of, or more independent at least, of the uh, big companies that now, uh, you know, dominate agriculture in the U.S. And that's really what, you know, you look at what people from the Bernie Sanders camp to the Trump camp, what they were saying is um, something fundamental has got to change. And so that's kind of what we're offering them. They, you know, both of these uh, candidates, Sanders and Trump, they kind of railed against um, the establishment in corporate America. And so what I'm kind of saying is, well, let's then let's do something about it and, and give people uh, more options uh, locally. And so you think the experiences that you've seen here in uh, Europe and Germany, for instance, are translatable into action uh, in North America as well? I wouldn't know why not. <laughs> Political differences, maybe? No, I don't think so. I mean, of course, look, I mean, it, the Germans um, didn't get this because they uh, had better leaders. They called for this and fought for this themselves. Mm -hmm. And so what I would like to see happen in the U.S. is the the sort of um, the, the, the city dwellers who are concerned about climate change and campaigning for it find common ground with uh, small town America and say, hey, you know, we've got some, some things we can do together. And that would not only help the climate, but also heal the, 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 the separation in the country. And so you think that jobs and uh, in the renewable sectors is one of the common grounds these people have? It's the jobs and it's also um, what, what, I, what we're also seeing is uh, decision-making power sort of done locally. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a, a very central conservative tenet, a, mm -hmm. a central tenet of conservatism. And uh, so what the conservatives don't like is for Washington to decide everything, or even the state capital, you know. Um, and and we, we could devolve this decision-making down to the county level, where people can then interact with the government productively. If we give you know, more of that decision-making power to these very local levels, people will then be, become uh, productively interactive with their local politicians, and then they will no longer feel like the system is just not working for them because they'll actually experience that they're getting something done.
Well, that it's so remote that they feel like it's almost, uh, or not almost, but that it's a force that works against them instead of working with them or yeah, for or no, them. Or maybe just nobody's even asking us how we're doing, Yeah, right? Uh, yeah. right. So what you're promoting basically is the concept known as bottom-up lawmaking or mm -hmm. bottom-up policymaking rather than traditional top-down uh, policy and lawmaking. Yeah, it's basically just, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're doing this for the for the people, so maybe we should also ask them how they're doing it and, and what they want. And you gave some examples of how that was not what was done in places like Ontario, Spain, Italy, the Czech Republic. Uh, so can you elaborate for the listeners on what the mistake in that context was that was made uh, in those areas? So I think what people have tried to do when they look at Germany is they say, how can we copy this success elsewhere? And so then they take the law and applied in other places. You just mentioned a handful that I've uh, talked about. Um, and what we found is that this law is not a pull mechanism. In other words, the law itself doesn't bring about the grassroots movement. It opens the door for the grassroots movement, but if the grassroots movement isn't there, then the only people who walk through that open door, you know, those are the uh, established existing companies that, that uh, you know, un are, are monitoring the market and, and, and understand what the law signifies. So um, we need to actually go back to the very beginnings of, of German history. And, uh, and that's kind of what we found in this book that we just wrote, uh, where we go all the way back to the 1970s and, and say, how did, these, how did this uh, energy transition in Germany get started? And really it got started when um, a couple of communities started saying, you know, all these infrastructure decisions are being made uh, without our input. And when we say what we want, we're told we're wrong. We're not respected. Um, and so they, they went out on the streets and started protesting. These were middle-aged people, you know, not, not hippies or anything. Um, if you look at the pictures back then, it's actually quite, uh, quite quaint uh, to see uh, some of the, you know, the way they're dressed and everything. Um, these were Christian Democrat voters, so they were uh, right of center, uh, largely, you know, a typical farming community kind of thing. Um, and so that's kind of where I see the, the real lesson from Germany. It wouldn't be in copying the law so much because we've, we've tried that and, and the sort of bitter conclusion is, okay, that doesn't quite work. Um, how do we, we, we don't need to allow people to build, we need to actually foster the grassroots movement. And the way you do that is to say, um, if people, if you have a, a project planned somewhere and people come at you and say, we don't want that, start a discussion with them. Say, okay, fine, we'll talk about this. Uh, if you don't want this project, you know, this is why we're doing it. So if it's the Dakota pipeline, you could say, look, you guys drive cars, right? Uh, this is our argument. We're trying to give you cheap gas. What can be wrong with that? And then they can say, well, we don't want it here, we want it there. Or maybe they'll say, hey, it's the climate, um, we need to leave this stuff in the ground, right? Ask them what they actually want, start that discussion, and I think what you're going to find if you foster a national discussion, a national discussion at the local level, what you're going to find is that in every country, people are going to say, you know what, we actually want to make our own energy, and we like this idea now of solar on my roof and farmers... Uh, you know, recovering their bio waste and, you know, being able to put up wind farms. Um, and this will become an organic movement. But it starts not with copying German law, but with simply allowing local people uh, to say no to a project. And then the second step is asking them, well, okay, 
but you're using energy, so how do you want to get it? And so um, involving people is, uh, is key in that respect. And I can't help thinking of two different dichotomies in that context. One, that uh, perhaps younger people might not be as uh, motivated to protest in the streets and so forth, as you just mentioned was the case in, for instance, Germany in the 70s and so forth, where you mentioned middle-aged people. Mm. Uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion going on right now with millennials. Are they interested in anything other than Facebooking or Netflixing or, you know, emailing or whatever. But on the other hand, we also saw with the Bernie Sanders camp that a lot of uh, the younger voters were very much uh, for him and the change and very motivated for trying something new. So so which of these two uh, tendencies do you think is going to be the prevailing one then in motivating the general public where new generations want new things? Well, uh, I mean, I don't know that this is so much a generational issue actually. Um, I think probably a lot of the people, you know, really, if you look at statistically, um, who is who is suffering, not suffering the most, but who is experiencing the greatest downturn right now, um, it actually turns out to be sort of uh, middle and lower class white America. Okay, now they're starting from a higher level than some of the poor minorities in the country. Uh, but they are experiencing statistically uh, the greatest decline in, in uh, lifespans and things like that. So um, I think there's a lot of uh, interest among 40 and 50 year old rural Americans, white, black, whatever, to say, uh, you know, we need some local solutions here. Um, and the, the young people, we get, you know, I've, I've been giving tours of various projects in Germany to busloads of, of students from around the world actually for the past 10 years. And really the, the, the thing that the, the Americans say at the end of the visit is, is almost always, yeah, too bad this won't work in the States. I think, there's, I think the thing to overcome is not some kind of lack of interest, but a feeling of resignation. So I think the interest among the young people actually is there they feel too powerless. Mm -hmm. And it's actually the same thing that you have with, let's say, the middle-aged Americans mm -hmm. who have probably tried some things and just didn't get anywhere with it. And so I keep coming back to we have to let the locals you know, make more decisions and, and not just tell them the experts are going to take care of it. Right, right. What about uh, decisions being just uh, those in form of, for instance, uh, investment or energy consumption? For instance, in the city of Los Angeles, you could now, those of us that buy power from the Los Angeles uh, Water uh, and Power Department, choose which percentage you want of your electricity, for instance, to come from renewable sources. Um, at least it's been like that until recently. Is that enough, in your opinion, financially based uh, motivations, or do you need people in the streets talking to other people and having town hall meetings and so forth? Well, in in cities, there's of course, uh, you know, like LA, there is a, a limited um, sort of impact that you can have. Uh, so you're not going to put up a wind farm right in the middle of of a heavily populated town, and you know, recovering biomass looks different in a city. Um, plus, we've we've sort of got the city dwellers on board, right? Just sort of looking at the 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 surveys of opinions. So uh, the question becomes, how do we get uh, sort of uh, the Midwest or the flyover states or whatever you want to call them? I would say that uh, what the people in the city, if they don't have uh, these same options that you have in rural areas to, to make their own energy, then buying options are 
um, you know, a good idea. But really, if you go out into the countryside, um, the issue becomes slightly different. You've simply got the potential to, you know, you've got a big barn, uh, you know, if you're living in a city, you might be in a high rise and not even have your own roof, right? Uh, but if you're, if you have a big barn, you can put a lot of solar on that. Um, you've got a farm, you can put wind, windmills up and continue farming underneath because the actual footprint of the turbines is, you know, like a small building, really. Um, and then you've got all the biomass that, that I spoke about before. Um, so a lot of this, um, it looks different from the, the rural perspective. Uh, I'd say for, for city dwellers who don't have quite the same options to make their own energy, certainly the buying options are a good idea. But you do end up, of course, you know, you lock yourself into the structure of we're reliant on the utilities, right? So that's a decision society has to make. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I find the United States to be quite corporatist. Um, coming from the, the European or the German uh, perspective, um, we, we probably, the Germans have what they call Mittelstand, which are mid-sized companies. And, um, and, and in, in the United States, we tend to like our companies to, 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 you know, we have takeovers and mergers and we like to be huge, right? And that comes with a price tag as well, a social price tag. Interestingly, you mentioned that because I was just going to ask you, and this then could be the, our sort of wrap-up idea, that uh, you've said the energy transition is a one-time opportunity to democratize, democratize rather the energy sector uh, because once the new power sector has been built, it's not going to be torn down uh, just so citizen can, citizens can put up their own projects. But as to what you just mentioned too, how can you make sure that the energy sector becomes democratized when, uh, at least in the United States, it's previously been marked very drastically from larger and larger profit-seeking corporations, privatizations, mergers, and so on and so forth. How do you balance those two trends? Well, actually, most of the power sector, like 85% of Americans, uh, are living in a power dictatorship, actually. You're in a monopoly. Uh, this is what the Germans in the 1980s called a power dictatorship, just mm -hmm. to make that point clear. Mm -hmm. This is what they were trying to move sort of away from. Um, so we really need to sort of define what I mean by energy democracy. And that is, uh, you know, democracy is not just about who invests. It's uh, really about um, who gets to help make the decision, right? So this is beyond uh, just you get to have your solar roof. It's also about um, even if you don't have a solar roof, you should be able to have input into these uh, decision-making processes. And I would say that basically we need to move uh, away from a system where the sort of gold standard is to become a big stock corporation. Um, Americans are very wed to that idea. You know, the entrepreneur idea in the U.S. is start your own company, but eventually you either are Facebook and you go, uh, you know, onto the stock market and make a fortune, or at least you're taken over by one, right? Mm -hmm. You get bought up. Um, German entrepreneurs and Danish entrepreneurs actually as well, and Austrians, um, they actually defend themselves against this. And um, it's, it's kind of the idea that if you want to have any kind of long-term perspective, you can't be focused on the next quarterly report for your uh, shareholders and you know what the dividends are going to look like. Large corporations come into communities, take money out, and then spread the profits. You know they pay out to all of these uh, shareholders who could be anywhere, 
And it's a type of ownership that comes without responsibility. So you own stocks in the company, but you're not liable for any wrongdoing. What we need to have more in society is ownership with responsibility so that if there's wrongdoing, the people who uh, you know, drove those decisions are actually responsible and are answerable to the communities. And what we find is if we move from a more corporatist kind of stock market uh, gold standard towards um, what the Germans call Genossenschaften, so this is like a, a cooperative, um, if we go more towards the cooperative model, then the profits that are taken out of the community are then provided back to, to the community to a large extent uh, because the stakeholders and the, uh, the shareholders are, are somewhat synonymous. And then decisions are made, you know, not how to get out of paying taxes, but actually how to pay this back to the community and what to do with it. And so I think that we could really help out a lot of these communities if we, you know, the small town America, if we switch to this model. That sounds like something that hopefully we could embrace more of in the future. All Interesting right. perspectives. Thank you so very much. And thank you for listening to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. Today I had the great honor and pleasure of interviewing Craig Morris of the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies, IASS, in Potsdam, Germany, about his view on how to best achieve a global energy transition, uh, learning some lessons from uh, the German and other European models. Thank you. Thanks.